Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. My name is Dux, and this week I will tell you a story. Hi there, my name is Tyler, and I have no idea what we're going to talk about. But before we do this, let's talk about what's been going on in our lives. What have you been up to, Tyler? Oh man, well, as I say every episode, I just inch ever closer to the end of my dissertation, and I have been in absolute crunch mode lately. So um, my gaming time has been pretty limited, but... Uh, I went through a phase where I got a bit obsessed with Octopath Traveler. Um, it's a really weird RPG. I don't. It's hard to say if I would recommend it. It's like very novel and in in a lot of ways, but I have some audible complaints with how it's set up. Other than that, you know, I swore I'd never get into Pokemon Sword and Shield because I was mad they got rid of the national decks, but I gave it a try, and I gotta say it's more fun than I thought it would be. I really should get into one of those new Pokemon games. I never played anything after Silver. Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah. And I don't know. Never gave it a try. I played a lot of Pokemon Go, but that's just something else. Right. Yeah. I would say that if you're looking for, like, if it doesn't matter if it's on the Switch or, you know, where you get it, Pokemon Heart Gold. It was a remake of Gold and Silver. Heart Gold and Soul Silver, they called them. That's probably my favorite Pokemon game ever. Oh, I also um, played I, I played one remake of the originals. I played Leaf Green. Oh, okay. That was really cool. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of cool stuff in the new ones. Um, and I know you have a Switch. Sword and Shield's good. The issue that I have with it is just that it feels unfinished. And, you know, it, it definitely... You, you know, in the old games, you'd sort of walk into a town and it would be really big and expansive and there'd be people to talk to and there'd be hidden stuff. And for the first couple of towns, it was like that. And then all of a sudden, you'd get to a town and it would be two houses... A, you know a pokemon center and the gym and that's it that, that's all that was there and it's kind of like did you forget to make this like you know did you forget to finish this town i often find that annoying so, if you notice in games that the creativity ran, ran out chronologically yeah and it's not been the the running out of creativity has not been evened out among the game but it shows up in the end just like i know a bunch of games where that happened so what have you been up to i've been semester is running like i was study all day but i've been playing monster hunter in between to get my mind off things which has been nice i saw you got iceborne and that you've been mangling some critters it, it's an it's a nice game even though it sometimes it seems unfocused about what it wants to be about even though it's a game about monster hunting it's also a game about a billion other things that are completely irrelevant to the game's story which i find fascinating I think that's completely fair. <laughs> you play hunting horn though, right? I do play hunting horn. Oh man, it's so cool. I, I just like to jam with the with the monsters. That's the only way to do it. <laughs> Is there any way to contact us if one would like get in contact with us? There are a few ways that you can get into contact with us. So first, you could send us an email at codexrexpodcast at gmail .com. Feel free to send us your thoughts, your comments episode suggestions we've gotten some really good episode suggestions mm -hmm. recently you can also find us on twitter same name codex rex podcast i post all kinds of stuff on there i try to make sure that we have something up every you know every few days or so especially when i spot things that have to do with video game history plus sometimes i put little teasers on there about what our next episodes are going to be about also while we are on a bunch of different streaming platforms for audio, Docs and I here have gone through the arduous process of putting all of our previous episodes and material onto YouTube. So you can find us on YouTube. We're just Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. All episodes up to this point have been uploaded and we're going to put other stuff on there too. And if you want to find me, I'm on Twitch three days a week. I'm just vegan Tyler. That's it. Find me playing whatever dumb thing I'm up to these days. And me, you can find, except from here. So <laughs> that's why I am. This is the only way you can listen to the sweet audible chocolate that is Dox's voice. I have been asked to read pornography literature to people. <laughs> um, and I have refused because the money wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So you want to get started then? Yes. We're just going to do a matrix dodge right there and just go, whew. Nope. And into the episode. There we go.
Hit me with that intro. Okay. What are we going to talk about today? I do know that we're doing a video game history podcast, but I came over this person and the more I read about them, the crazier their life got. So I had to make this decision. Do I leave all of this out and just stick to the video game stuff? Or do I include it? Uh, because holy shit, that person's life was insane. And you will see how I decided. Um. <laughs> okay. Okay, we start out in 1922. Whoa. Yeah. It's, um, we are in a town in Germany called Pirmasens, which is located on the German Palatinate. The Palatinate is in the southwest of Germany. Back then, in 1922, Germany was very different from the country that we know today. Only four years earlier, Germany had lost the First World War. The Kaiserreich was dismantled and the people of Europe had just seen one of the bloodiest wars of human history so far. The Palatinate, where our story takes place right now, was occupied by the French and they were highly suspicious of the Germans. France and Germany had this long history of rivalry and conflict and the Germans were just not to be trusted with independence. The, these times were rough, so rough that none of us can imagine any of the strife and hunger and pain that plagued the people of Europe back then. But for some reason, life goes on, you know, the wounds turn to scars, and as uncaring as nature tends to be, the years go by, the sun rises, flowers bloom, and hope creeps back into people's hearts, just as if it never left. And thus, spring returns once more in 1922 on the 8th of March, and Rudolf Heinrich Bär is born as the son of Charlotte and Leo Bär. He will later refer to himself as Ralph. So, okay. we will call him Ralph as well. All right. We've got our protagonist. What's up, Ralph? So, just as a child brings thoughts of brighter days, our knowledge of history casts a calamitous shadow over this young family, right? And especially since the bears were part of the German Jewish population. Oh. While Charlotte Bear cared for Ralph and his younger sister Ilse, his father earned money by supplying shoe factories with leather. And he ran like this leather tannery business. Uh, but due, due to the complications of post-war Germany, like inflation, dwindling supplies, poverty, unemployment, or the destruction of the country, the, the business was run into the ground, and the family moved to Cologne, sitting um, north of the Palatinate. The Nazis came to power in 1933, which is when Ralph was 11 years old. And when he was 14, he was expelled from school because of his Jewish heritage. The bears, his family, became more and more worried for their lives, and thus they fled in 1938, just a few months before the pogroms would start. So they went to Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and they took the ship to New York and started a new life from the apartment in the Bronx. And Ralph, he was a young boy, and his life had turned into this huge adventure. He grew up within this uncertainty and found himself in the country that for a long time was a safe haven for the tired, poor, and huddled masses. So some of Ralph's relatives, they had moved to the US in the 20s already, and they built themselves a life. And Ralph, he got a job with his cousin that lived in, um, in New York already. He had a factory that produced very specific leather products. I don't know what it is with his family and leather products. And That's weird. <laughs> yes. uh, they Just made, really into leather. I don't know. But they, made, they, they didn't make shoes. Um, they made leather products for a cosmetic company. Okay. And during this time, Ralph got in contact with automation for the first time because all these things were produced automated. And the leather products that they sold, they were stitched by these huge machines. And Ralph, he started tinkering with them in such a way that he was able to improve their performance. So he grew fond of this process of innovation, of coming up with something that hasn't been done before. Right. The, the thrill of creating something new, something that we've come across quite a lot in these stories, right? Yeah. And boy, would he create something new, but it's not the time yet. So Ralph, he enrolled in a correspondence course for radio and television servicing offered by the National Radio Institute of DC. 
Radio was like this huge deal in the 20s, moving forward, because all of a sudden, culture was an omnipresent concept. Right. Music, sports, politics, anything you could imagine could reach every person wherever they were. And this machine changed society, and Ralph took the chance to be part of this new mass media. Not only this, but the Nazis took his chance to gain a formal education when they kicked him out of school. So this was his second chance. After finishing all of these technical courses, he started working as a radio service technician, fixing people's radios, installing antennas, shit like that. Uh, this was 1940. He's like 18 years old now. World War II was happening already, but America wasn't in it yet. Pearl Harbor was attacked in the end of 1941, and Ralph was drafted in 43. When you get drafted, first you got to go through basic training. So Ralphie, he sent to Fort Dix in Jersey. I, okay, <laughs> should, I, should I make a joke here? Should we let it go? Fort Dix is really tiny. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Ralphie. You're going down to Fort Dix for your basic training. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Poor Doc. You should see his face. He's telling us a nice, happy story here. And <laughs> so, um,. You can imagine that just as Tyler's jokes, basic training is pretty dull. So, <laughs> and, and Ralph, he missed his old job working with radios because he liked it. He enjoyed um, tinkering. Yeah. So what he did during basic training is he'd wander around the fort and look for broken radios to fix them. That was his hobby. That's what he did all day. And I, ha I have a few friends that went to the military. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things that they always tell me about how it was is that it was terribly boring because you never do anything. You just wait for some things to happen. And yeah. um, I can, so I can, I cannot relate because I've never experienced it, but I know people that probably can relate to being bored out of their minds in a military camp. So Ralph always was good at seeking out silver linings behind these dark clouds fortune bestowed upon him. Um, he was, he, even, though, even though he knew he was going to Europe to fight the Germans, uh, he'd, he'd make himself comfortable in whatever situation he would find himself in. This, this is his life story. Life's fu yeah. life, life fucks him over. He makes the best of it. That's a good trait to have, though, truly. Dude, you know, yeah. you can't always control what happens to you, but you can control how you react to it. Yeah, and apparently Ralph was a genius at just making himself comfortable, whatever happened to him. In the army, Ralph qualified for a certain job due to a skill he had. And you would think, ah, of course, he's the radio technician, right? He's going to do all the radio shit. No, it's not. He's from Germany, and he knows German. Oh. So his knowledge of the German language and culture would be very important to the war effort. He was sent, I don't know if this is a known thing in America, but Camp Ritchie in Maryland... And in Camp Ritchie, he would be part of the Ritchie Boys. And the Ritchie Boys were like a pretty big counterintelligence unit in the Second World War. And in within the Ritchie Boys were all of these people that were immigrants to the U.S. from, from Europe. And they would be used, because they had all the experience with, with Europe, as counterintelligence units. They would, How interesting. They would be specially trained to extract information from the enemy and spread false information upon them. They were basically the real-world version of what Tarantino depicted as the Inglorious Bastards. Not just, <laughs> just, just, just not these bloody murderers that just kill people, but actual specialists that came from the countries that they were fighting a war against and therefore were specialists for these countries. You know, my brother and I will still call each other and we'll just go, Margareti. And the other one will go, Margareti. Say it with passion, Margareti. Christoph Waltz is amazing. I like, I love the guy. I fucking love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they were in Maryland in this camp. They'd be trained to interrogate and analyze and extract information to further the war effort. For example, after completing his intelligence training, Ralph spent a lot of of his time to collect 
collecting all kinds of machines from the Germans and um, the people that were fighting in this war and analyzed them. And he wrote like descriptions of them to give them to all of the soldiers from the different allied nations. So they would know who they were up against. They were able to identify weapons, right. were able to identify uniforms, shit like that. He was basically a, an, um, an intelligence personnel that would teach people of how to fight this war against these enemies that they didn't know. For example, he would give courses to British soldiers about what how, how German weapons function. Oh, okay. Fun fact, while stationed overseas in Britain, he used some big, you know, he has this radio thing going on in him. He, and he, he was tired yeah. of not having radios around him. So whenever he doesn't have a radio, he has to find a way to make <laughs> himself a radio. So <laughs> he's just got a bunch of parts in a bag that he can slap together to make a radio at any there's time. There's nothing in the bag. He just finds things and turns them into radios. <laughs> For example, there's one story where he, finally, like, he, he had some old German mine detectors and he just smashed them together so he and his buddies could listen to a new radio like jazz and shit like that while what? they were bored in the camp waiting for D-Day to happen. <laughs> he ripped apart German mine detectors and made radios out the of them. The dude was literally MacGyver. He could apparently craft a radio <laughs> out of anything. Two sticks and a can of coke? Here's your radio. Some bread and a bit of sauerkraut? Give me some tweezers and I craft your TV set. Dude. <laughs> Hey, we're all gonna go listen to some jazz out on the rocks. <laughs> the rocks that Ralph is banging together. You can get some really good radio signals from the vibrations. <laughs> oh man, that's fucking rad. Go yeah, Ralph. He's an amazing dude. And this is only getting started. <laughs> he didn't invade Europe because he was stationed in Britain before D-Day. And a few weeks before D-Day happened, he was studying algebra in his tent, apparently. And he spent all night studying it because he wanted to um, further his education after the war. And he did it so long that he caught um, pneumonia. And when they oh. were sent out, he was sick. So while his buddies were invading, he, he missed out on getting killed. Oh, darn. Yeah. Curses. Well, that's a strangely fortuitous turn of events. Yes, weird, right? He stayed in the army until 646, a while after the war ended. And then he went home back to America. You know, I just want to, I've just been thinking about just to backpedal a little bit, how weird is it to be born somewhere, get kicked out of that place, go to another country, get drafted into that country's military, and then get drafted to go invade the place that kicked you out? Unimaginable. Right? Right? That's so strange, right? Like to to, to show back up and be like, ha ha, now I'm back and I've got guns this time. It's completely surreal. But it was reality for most of the Ritchie boys. Yeah. Well, I also suppose, you know, if you knew what was going on and what had happened to your people, I can understand the desire to be like, I got to go back and fix this, you know, although it seems like, you know, you get drafted, you probably don't have a choice, no. but I don't know if, um, Ralphie had some kind of revenge intention about this as it is often depicted yeah. with the soldiers that went from, that had a German origin, but lived in the U S because they were exiled, but that's definitely a part of it. Right. So I'm wondering, I don't know anything about the the Ritchie boys, but I'm wondering if um, a lot of people that they recruited were people fleeing persecution. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Yes, definitely. So maybe that's something I can look up later. Thousands and thousands of people had to leave, had to leave Germany to um, not get prosecuted. And not only um, the Jewish population, but um, many other people were being cleansed by the Nazis. So after the war, he went back to the US and got a bachelor's degree in te television engineering. And it was the right time to become a TV engineer because it was the 50s and TVs were becoming cheap all of a sudden. And cheap TVs means lots of TV business. And lots of TV business means lots of cash in becoming an expert in TVs. Must have been like being a lone beer salesman in the middle of the mosh pit. <laughs> That's an expression I've never heard before. I, I just made it up, but I think okay. it makes sense. It's great. Yeah. So, so Ralph jumped between a few jobs and he ended up with a with a military okay. contractor called Loral. And even though these people, they usually produce military equipment, Ralph got the job. Um, he was coupled with a dude called Leo and they were supposed to build a huge luxury TV set, a cathode ray TV, like a, a monster, the, the, the biggest TV they could imagine. And I, I think that Loral just wanted to sell this TV for profit. But maybe it was some, some higher-up government official cashing in a favor okay. or something. Like, 
Remember those government contracts I got you guys? It's time to get my end of the deal. Okay, what kind of, what do you want? I want a TV. Just, <laughs> just a TV? Yes, it must be the size of my garage so I can see the freckles on the news anchor spot. What? No, no rice, no bats. You do this or you are done. <laughs> I'll call in some favors myself if I don't get that TV. <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe, maybe that like this, but maybe they just wanted to sell it or something. I don't know. Who knows? So while fidgeting around on this huge project in the 50s, Ralphie started to feel like that there must be more to TVs. Like just staring at them while you watch whatever program was on could not have been everything that these things could be used for, right? Maybe there was a way to control a TV in more ways than switching the channel. This guy was working all day on engineering problems and apparently he was trying very hard to get more work on his shoulders. This will absolutely haunt him. And he asked his boss if he could try to add some kind of game mechanic into the TV so you could play something. A minor little game, nothing fancy. And he was immediately rejected. He was supposed to finish the thing and not include any gaming functions. Do what you're told to do, Bear. What a nonsensical idea, right? You're only allowed to watch the TV. You're not allowed to interact with it, idiot. Who would want that? Yes. This is still a free country. And you're free to shut the fuck up. <laughs> do your job. So he finished <laughs> building this monster luxury TV and didn't sell. Just didn't work out. Of course. This was 1951. <laughs> and well, TVs were expensive, just like as a as a as a starter, right? Like TVs were a luxury item to they, start. They like cost a fortune. Ones. I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. They were getting they, they were getting so much I, cheaper, but still not affordable for everybody. Have you seen you've seen Back to the Future at some point, yeah, right? Okay, so he he goes back in time and he's sitting at dinner with his mother's family and he's talking about, they're like, Oh, check out our TV. And he's like, yeah, we've got a couple of those. And they're like, <laughs> what a good joke that is. Why is it funny? Nobody has several TVs. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like the, why would you have multiple? They're so expensive. Right. Yes. Just like that. And especially it, like, TVs back then were huge because what they would have in height and um, width, they'd also have in depth because the the bigger it right. got, the bigger the, the longer the cathode would have to be. So he quit his job with Laurel because he asked for a raise and he didn't get it. And he was like, yeah, okay, then okay. I'll leave. Good reason to bail. Yeah. So not only did these people refuse to commit to a revolutionary idea that would have changed the market 20 years before, they also let the genius go that came up with it. Of course. I just want, if anybody is around that ever knows someone or worked with Laurel, you done fucked up. <laughs> you don't know what you had. <laughs> so Ralph, he went from one company to another. He gained a lot of experience, but never really stuck with the company for a long time. Usually okay. he left rather quickly until he came upon a company called Sanders Associates, another military contractor in New Hampshire. And you can imagine them as one of those many military contractors. Bivy was creating computational solutions to effective warfare. I think in the PDP-1 episode, we ran across one of those already. I think you're right. And since Ralphie had made quite the name for himself by now, he was hired as a senior engineer and was supposed to oversee a design department consisting of 200 people. Like He was, he was a boss now. Uh, he wasn't an engineer mm -hmm. anymore. That's a big deal. Yeah. he was Also, he was really good at organizing people. And all of his thought processes and plans, he meticulously wrote down. He was so great at his job um, that over the next few years, his employers would give him more and more resources to work with. And all of these, and he would work on all of these top secret government contracts. Wow. Yeah. And his methodical way of working has another advantage. It gives us the source for when he came up with the idea for his most important invention. And let's hear a quote by him about that. So I'm sitting around the East Side bus tunnel during a business trip to New York, thinking about what you can do with the TV set other than tuning in to channels you don't want. And I came <laughs> up with the concept of doing games, building something for 1995. This was 1966 in August. Now, you've got to remember, I'm a division manager. I have a seven to eight million dollar direct labor payroll. I can put a couple of guys on the bench who can work on something. Nobody needs to know doesn't even cripple my overhead and that's how i started holy shit so he's like i'm gonna siphon off some dudes 
for this side project where I'm going to get them to make video games. Yeah, he's the fucking overseer. Nobody's going to ask. Fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. What are those two guys doing, Ralph? Nothing. Don't fucking worry about it. Are you the overseer? I didn't fucking think so. Go do your job. Dude, this was a military complex. It was guarded by soldiers. You couldn't just walk into doors and ask questions. That wasn't the thing. So if there was a door with weird sounds behind it, you shut the fuck up about it. <laughs> <laughs> Top secret, high level military shit. Yeah. And if you like, if you have management power in, in, in such a space, you can do whatever you want. And that's what that's our tax dollars at work. That's what Ralphie did. <laughs> so Ralph, he had experienced that the prices for TVs were plummeting. And even though his job was to design military equipment, he couldn't shake the thought of the TV requiring more functions than just being a television. This is the 60s. So games for computers were around already, but only on machines like the PDB-1, right? Um, mm -hmm. That could be found in academic institutes not in any household or something like that. Ralphie, he was thinking of creating a device that would not cost a fortune, but would be very cheap. Cheaper than the TV that it could be connected to. And Ralph, he was convinced that he could build a machine like this for, he said 1995, but I think it was around something less than $25, which in today's money would be about $200, about what a console costs, right? That would make sense, yeah. Yeah. Well, consoles these days are a little more expensive, more but expensive, yes, yeah. maybe like 90s consoles. Yeah. In Ralphie's team, his secret team that nobody knew about, there was an engineer called Bill Harrison that Ralph seemed to like, probably because Bill was from a similar self-taught background. Bill had enough knowledge about working with transistor circuits to implement most of the stuff he wanted to do with this machine he was thinking about. They wanted to demonstrate to their employers that they were able to use a device to send signals to a television screen, manipulating it to show images, which could be transformed into patterns resembling all kinds of games. Even though Ralph liked the idea of creating a gaming machine, he self-admittedly was really bad at coming up with any kind of game concept. Like he didn't know how to design a game. The first idea they implemented was a game where the player had to violently thrash the lever of this machine to change the color of the TV screen. <laughs> but why? Like it started, it started red, and you had to push it really hard, and if you pushed it long enough, it would turn into a blue TV screen. I won. And it was a single-player game. Five out of five would play again. Wow. He, he can really make the screen turn purple really fast. And this was the birth of speed running. Yes. So <laughs> later on, like in his memoirs later on, Ralph admits that at this point in their lives, Bill and Ralph were better engineers than they were game designers. <laughs> I mean, because, yeah, that's an art in and of itself, right? Like there's often this disconnect between software and hardware yeah. and in a lot of the stuff we talk about. You need different talents you... to create a game. Absolutely. You do. Yeah. So Ralph, he wrote up this four page paper and I read something about what he used as like why he used certain words. And he, he says that he came, that he used the word game specifically as in gaming and game a game machine because game was often used in the military for um, practice exercises. And so he would think if he would use this word, it would very subtle give his employers the impression that this would further any kind of military technology or something. Huh. That's fascinating. I had never thought about the usage of the word game before. I am, I am unsure about this too. Okay. I, I don't, it feels weird to think that this was come up with because a game is a game, right? Chess was called a game before the 19th century. Yeah, but I suppose like war games are a thing, right? Yeah. And so I suppose if you're going for specific language, although I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, what else would you call it? You know, like I can't think but of another. Maybe he tried to stay away from the word toy. Yes, that could be. That could be. Yeah. We did talk about how like, I remember specifically in the Satellaview episode, we talked about how it a lot of stuff Nintendo tried to do 
had trouble catching on because people were like, why the hell would I want to bid on stocks from a child's toy? You know? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, maybe he was trying to, I mean, only he would know. The but, word, but also um, the word toy has a very negative childish connotation about it. That it does. I probably grown up people from the military wouldn't enjoy or even yeah. support. So yeah, he wrote up this paper going into deep details about which kinds of games could be implemented on a device like this. And by 1966, um, he was already working at this company for 15 years, by the way. They had finished their prototype called the TV Game Number 1, which was able to cause the TV to display a vertical line that could be moved around. And by using careful wording and selling, it was they, they kind of they sold it as a way to practice reflexes train reflexes, and he was able to get the head of R&D to grant him a bunch of funding for this, which gave Ralph the chance to move a lot of people into his little secret department that until then nobody knew about. Mm -hmm. So in 1967, he hired a guy called Bill Rush. Let's talk about Bill for a second. So Ralph describes Rush like this. So Bill Rush was an engineer who worked for Herb Campman, the corporate R.R. IR and D director, I needed an engineer to work along with Harrison. I wanted two guys to work the problem, and Rush came mostly because his boss didn't want him. My, <laughs> my biggest problem that summer was motivating Rush. He'd come in at 10 or 11 a.m. and spend an hour talking. He was lazy and frustrating as hell. Rush was extremely creative and extremely lazy, hard to motivate guy. Brilliant. Also, he played really happy guitar. But it's a good thing we had him <laughs> because he helped put us on the map. I love the thought of I love the thought of this guy Ralph. You know, he's been through all this shit and he gets to be in charge of like 200 people at this military complex and he's like I'm going to fucking squirrel away a couple of dudes to make this TV game and then he gets funding from R&D so he can build this stuff and he brings in this like dude who plays guitar and fucks around who's like this is a sitcom in waiting right dudes walking through military things and like bumbling into meetings and you know and that's the time that bill saved us in those diplomatic talks with that sweet guitar solo yeah dude but also um even i mean ralph left germany pretty early but this all of this is a very german attitude toward people like, we know Ralph is very meticulous about things, but also he complains about him not being on time and he complains about small talk. Germans <laughs> fucking hate small talk. You don't small talk with us. This is not what's going to happen. If you work with us, you come to work and you work, and then you leave again. Nothing, and it drives us insane. <laughs> and, and also the whole, this whole monologue of him is hyper-direct about what he doesn't like, but in the end he's like, but I just need him, so I got to keep him around (laughs) yeah he fucking sucks and he talks to people too much but he's absolutely brilliant and he could shred the guitar and honestly i gotta keep him around (laughs) i love it okay also you've just told me that i just you know when i speak to you we need to be terse and direct and to the you know to the point so only when we are in a professional environment that's why germans are perceived as unfriendly because there's in, in business interactions, in many countries, you have this thing that before you start the business talks, you always do half an hour of small talk, which in Germany doesn't happen. It's actually unfriendly to distract from what's going to happen. Docs, are you saying that this podcast is not a professional environment? It is a professional environment. <laughs> Just not as professional as I would like it to be. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, sir. Let's get on with the story. Can you just repeat the facts? <laughs> I am highly engrossed in this tale of adventure that you have told me so far. <laughs> I will now respectfully sit here quietly and listen to the tale that you have taken the time to provide to me. Uh, I welcome your no bullshit attitude that you have come up with all of a sudden. <laughs> let's, let's continue with this engaging story. Yes. <laughs> so, so rush. Bill Rush. He brainstormed with Ralph about specifications of the games that they wanted to implement. And one game they thought of was this competitive game, a game that you could play with two people where you would have to fill a bucket by, again, <laughs> by, 
I again repeatedly pressing a button as fast as possible. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I don't know what it was. This is from the company that brought you move a line on the screen and change a color with a lever. We've got fill a bucket with a button. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> the thing is, video games were known, and they knew <laughs> they knew that video games existed. And many people that did like these digital things, they would implement board games on on video screens. But yeah. but Ralphie was like, why why would you implement a board game on a on 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 any kind of technical device? It doesn't make no sense. It exists in the real world. You have to implement something that doesn't exist. So he had this pressure inside of him to come up with a game that wasn't done before because he was a creative mess. He mm -hmm. he, he only came up with fill the bucket and turn, <laughs> turn, turn the screen blue. I just it's like. I'm just imagining this like army superior coming in and being like, "All right, bear, I need a status report. I need a status report on what you've been doing down here in R and T." And he's like, "Check this shit out. What I've got's gonna blow your fucking mind." And he just pushes the button, and the bucket fills. And the dude's like, "Carry on," <laughs> because all of these military guys have a complete lack of fantasy. <laughs> I want to fill the bucket too. I can fill the bucket faster than you. Wait a second, it's going to be better. <laughs> so they had oh to God. they had to keep considering that they were related to the military, right? Um, what, oh no. what, <laughs> so what they also created was a peripheral that looked like a gun. <laughs> of course they did. Of course, and and with which the player could shoot targets on the screen. It was like a laser gun. Um, okay, that's pretty rad. And so they got some some feedback from their employer for that. Let's listen to that. So my boss came up to play with our rifle. We had this plastic rifle by then. And he used to shoot at the target spot from the hip. He was pretty good at it. And that kind of got his attention. We got more friendly. And he kept the project alive. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So the gun saved the project. <laughs> 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 I'm just imagining them in like being like, fuck, we got to find a way to justify our existence. What can we, what can we show him when he comes by again? He, he's not sold on the bucket anymore. Yeah, he, I don't know. How about like a fucking gun? That's it. Yes. Fuck. Yes. We'll make a gun. <laughs> the military loves guns. We'll just make another one. And of course, whether like they, because this is an R&D department and they were just playing around with things. They had some plastic tubes lying around and they would play with them as guns already. Pew, pew, run through the corridors. Pew, 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 pew. And then they just put some lasers in them and make them shoot at the screen. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so this idea absolutely convinced his boss at R&D and they secured more development funding. This was the second prototype already and they thought that they could now also convince the board of the company because until now, they only spoke to the R&D boss. Mm -hmm. And so the board of the company, they could authorize them to commercialize this whole product, to make some money off of it, because this was the plan that, that um, Ralphie was going forward to, right? But the board of Sanders Associates, they were not convinced. They didn't get it. But the CEO, who was also the founder of the company, he was called Sanders, he still gave them permission and thus they kept pushing. He didn't give them permission to commercialize it. He just said, if you keep doing this, we'll give you another chance later on. Okay. So that they weren't going to do anything with it then, but that if they keep working on it, they might do something with it later. Yeah. Maybe they can commercialize it in a few years. Um, okay. They didn't think it was ready yet. But the CEO was okay with the concept and he understood what was going on with it. The, okay. the problem was that this prototype that they currently had, it was super cluttered. It was getting bigger and bigger because they were adding all of these peripherals and def different controllers to play all of these different games, like the lever for the super engaging bucket game and the, the gun and stuff like that. And it was getting too expensive to build. They couldn't stick to their $25 goal, right? And they had to slim it down. Most of the footwork on the hardware was done by Bill Harrison um, since Ralph. He was managing so many people. He had um, 500 other engineers to oversee while also working on his secret side project. So yeah, Bill had to do all of the uh, hard work. But um, not Bill Rush, because Bill Rush is no, Bill slamming Rush. on his 
Well, slamming Bill, on his guitar and hitting on interns. Yeah, Bill Rush did not. He came up with the games, but he didn't do any of the engineering shit. Yeah. Harrison and Ralph, they were not happy with their slimmed down version of the machine. And they also had trouble coming up with good games still. And they also had a hard time getting Rush to start coming up with new ideas. Like this didn't make it easier because you, you would have to motivate Rush all the time to do anything. And, and, and it, it was rather frustrating. Yeah, they couldn't keep him productive. And to do to, to get him his brain working again, Ralph gave him the resources to work on a project where he would build a box that could drop the sound of his electric guitar by an octave. So he could experiment okay. with that in his free time instead of working on the game. So he could do that all day. So you have to imagine this huge military building um, full of soldiers lots of long corridors, hundreds of doors that you cannot simply enter without permission. And then this is going on. For three months, there were guitar sounds coming out of the little room on the fifth floor. It sparked all kinds of rumors because <laughs> no, nobody was allowed to walk in there. They couldn't ask questions. And this was a military facility developing weapons of murder. <laughs> all of a sudden there was music and it made no sense i heard i heard some noises coming from upstairs on the fifth floor and you know i'm thinking they're trying to kill people with the power of rock mm -hmm. this is where the, the brown noise rumor started <laughs> <laughs> i heard they're trying to figure out if you could just beat somebody to death as a secondary option with a with a sweet guitar <laughs> <laughs> so even though it sounds a bit like a waste of time it wasn't because letting rush play around like this gave him a cool new idea okay um he like he played he, fit, he, he fitted it around with all of this these new technologies that bear gave him and he was like maybe if we implement a third point that would move around in between these vertical stripes that we could create Maybe we can create like a new game that could be played by two players, and we could shut like, up. We could like simulate a table tennis game. Shut up! You're telling me about Pong. This is the story of Pong. No, it's not. It's table tennis. The game would be called table tennis. <laughs> I'm serious. Of course, this is not Pong. This is table okay. Tennis. So it just well. Wait a second. This is this is going to be important. What you, your reaction right now is important because this is blow my mind. This entire story. So they came up with a table tennis game where you okay. would have two paddles that you could move up and down with these rotating things. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And there was a ball going in between them. And if you would get it behind the thing, you'd score. So they overcame these troubles of controlling these paddles by making this new peripheral with the wheels. And the machine all of a sudden got less cluttered. And it was still powerful. And in November 1967, they had this fourth prototype. And it consisted of this table tennis game. A chasing game where you would, you would one dot would have to rush behind another. The lightning gun game and three times of controllers. They completely got rid of that TV color thing and the bucket thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, I just got to tell you, the bucket game isn't really doing well in our focus groups. Yeah, I think we're going to have to scrap it. And each of these three games had their own controller. <laughs> so one game, one controller. Okay. It was pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, so joystick dial wheels and a rifle and their ceo he loved this product but sanders associates okay. they were having a rough time at the moment and they refused to sell it themselves they had to fire a lot of people let them go and it also maybe played a role that these were military contractors they had no interest in selling commercial electronics so they told ralph you have to find someone to sell the license to because we're not going to do it. Took him a few years to figure out who am I going to sell the license for this console to? Because I have this finished product that works and it has games and I could sell it to people, but I, I don't know who to. So he started contacting cable companies and it took, uh, but all of them were going out of business because there was this huge TV crisis going on because TVs were getting too cheap and nobody was buying them anymore. And especially cable companies were going out of business. It took him a few years and talking to a few different also TV manufacturers until he came across a company called Magnavox. And Magnavox is um, this one of the oldest American TV producers. And they were uh, 
established brand in the US. Everybody knew that name. Uh, they were like founded in 1917, and they had a lot of experience with innovation and taking a machine like Ralphie's prototype onto the market. They knew how to do that. For some reason, things went hyper slow back then. Like, do you know when today, like this, a deal is done in half a year and they slap out something? They took three years mm -hmm. to make any kind of deal that wasn't even half fleshed out. And even, yeah, like, I think it took them two years to sign a contract. And I'm, I'm just confused that they were not in a hurry to get this out, even though this did not exist before. There was no video yeah. game consoles. So the prototype, it was taken out of Ralph's hands into the um, the Magnavox team led by an engineer called George Kent. And George Kent, he turned it into this sleek product, like the, um, uh, maybe I can show you a picture of the um, original prototype. And you can, like, this is what the machine that Ralph built looked like. Oh, okay. So um, think about when you were a child and you would go into someone's house and they would have um, like <laughs> some kind of audio equipment and you would look at it and it had like a thousand switches and knobs and dials and wires coming out of it. And then they would say, don't touch that. That's what that looks like to me. It looks like three wooden boxes stacked on top of each other with wires and switches and knobs and a bunch of labels on it. One of them says vert. One of them says, does it say English? I can't read the other one. Those, Something in those were the dial switches for the um, table tennis game. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, I see it now. Okay. Yeah. Right hand player, left hand player. I see. So it tells you which side of the screen you're on. Mm -hmm. It was all built in, like in that prototype, it's all built in into one box. They later were able to separate all of the different things because it was all just one thing that was all connected yeah. to this, this monster. They didn't really have a concept of plug and play, you know? Right. That's very strange looking. It's It looks nothing like you would imagine a console to look like. It looks like a bunch of wires into a box. Yeah, and this weird wooden furnish about it, right? Yeah, you can even see like the places that like the wires were soldered on there. How fascinating. <laughs> okay. So yeah, but Magnavox was able to slim this thing down. It got much smaller. They ripped out all kinds of shit that they didn't thought was necessary. And it, it turned into this sleek, um, really good-looking product that they were they would want to commercialize. And let's listen, like because Ralph wasn't convinced, and let's listen to what he had to say about what they did to his baby. Magnavox did a really lousy engineering job. <laughs> Over-engineered the machine, then they upped the price phenomenally so that the damn thing sold for $100. Here's the thing. I wanted to sell for $19.95, coming out at 100 Then, in their advertising, they showed it hooked up to a Magnavox TV sets and gave everyone the impression that this thing only worked on Magnavox TV sets. He was furious. Mm. One thing. I'd, how does he come up with this 1995 thing? Yeah, she seems like an arbitrary number. Like, did he fall into a supermarket price tag cauldron when he was a child? Well, I mean, you know, I can't speak for him, but you'd want it to be affordable enough that people could buy it, right? So this is like something that we talked about in the very first episode of the podcast is, well, let me rephrase this. I guess they weren't selling games, right? So I was going to make a comparison to the razors and blades model um, that the head of Sega talked about in the very first episode with the idea that you sell a, a cheap console and then you sell full price games, right? So you take a loss on the console and then the oh, games are what yeah, make you money. Yeah. But thinking about this, I think this could be even more distilled to just, if you make it cheap, people are more likely to buy it. Um, you know, I think about like, I don't know. Sometimes you and I will be talking about games on Steam and we're like, I don't know if I want it. How much is it? And we'll be like, eh, it's like 15 bucks. And we're like, ah, fuck it. Sure. I'll get it. We'll pick it up. We'll play it a couple and times. If it's not right? 95, you get it. But if it's 20, you don't. Yeah. Right. Or like suddenly, oh, look, that new game came out and it's $60 and the DLC is 30 bucks, you know? And it's like, do I really want to throw $90 at something I don't know if I'll like? And, not really. And I totally get this, but he's not a salesman or anything. He's just a dude. Yeah. How does he come up with 1995? Why does he do that? 
I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, I've in, in my research, I've definitely run into some people that we'll talk about in future episodes who have like picked things that seemed completely arbitrary, but were like very well thought out about like, okay, so here's this arbitrary date that I want to do X thing by, but they thought about why that date would be the reason they wanted it. That, right. That and explanation so explanation like, really fits Ralph because he's OCD about everything. So he will have had a reason for this. Yeah, that makes sense. So not only did they remove most of the peripherals, except for the turn dials for the table tennis game, um, the light gun was turned into an add-on that you could that could be sold for additional profit. They also removed the ability of the machine to display any color, it was black and white, um, oh. which would make the production much cheaper. They also moved all of the games out of the console onto cartridges because until now all of the games were integrated. And these cartridges would like manipulate the circuitry in such a way as many later consoles would also do with cartridges. This made the console as small as it was. And all of this they did while continuously consulting Ralph and Harrison about how they should do it because these two guys knew this thing the best. A few more games were added that just resembled already existing board games which Bear was so mad about that because he made this innovative thing with games that were perfectly fine for this video game console thing that he invented. And these morons, they put board games on it like some plebeians not knowing what they were doing with this thing that he invented. He was he was pissed. I could totally get it, though. You know, it's like you've 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 taken this thing that you've worked on for how long has he been dreaming of this product? And then someone else gets it and messes with it. Right. Yeah. So he thought that all of this was useless, um, since people could play board games without the TV, but his machine was to give something new to people. This project, it was dripping with bare sense of pride, you know, but obviously nobody cared about that. <laughs> and and yeah, why do they care? Mag- Mag- Magnavox was happy to sell the console for the $99.95, which today is $620. Which oh, man. fits more into the price range of what current consoles cost. It was called the Magnavox Odyssey and was launched oh. in September 1972. And it was the first ever gaming console. How cool. Magnavox, they were convinced that it would sell well because this product was the first of its kind, right? But they made a few mistakes. They sold the Odyssey at Magnavox stores only. Mm-hmm. Uh, the console was very expensive, far more expensive than Ralph originally thought, you know. And also Magnavox spread these rumors that the machine only worked with Magnavox televisions. So you would also have to buy a TV, right? Right. Even though they ordered 120,000 units, they only sold half of them. And Magnavox had to figure out console advertisement from scratch. That was never done before as well. So they had to, mm-hmm. to see how do you sell such a cheap electronics device to people. They were able to improve the sales by stopping to lie about the incompatibility with TVs. And they also halved the price if you bought a Magnavox TV with it. In total, Odyssey would sell 367,000 times before it went off the market. Um, do you That's t- pretty good numbers for the first That's console ever. Pretty good numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Though, due to the financial troubles at Sanders Associates and because his work on his gaming project ended so swiftly and in such an unsatisfying way, Ralph fell into this huge depression. He mm. he got really sad about life and things. And like all of his friends were at Sanders Associates, right? And so many people were let go that not all of his friends had to move away. He was lonely all of a sudden. And none of the people that he worked with were there anymore. And he had no backup. I'm sorry. I'm just imagining him like <clears throat> sitting at home alone. He's depressed and he picks up the phone and he goes, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm trying to reach Bill Rush. Hey, Bill, Bill, could you just make small talk to me for an hour so I could get really mad? <laughs> I just, I, I miss it, Bill. And then could you just like stand behind a closed door and like fucking shred on your guitar? Oh. I, just, I, I just need to go back to the days of old when I hated you but needed you somewhere deep in his heart <laughs> he still needs him it's, it's really I need you Bill I need you and your sweet guitar <laughs> shred me another one Bill <laughs> so this is what he had to say about his depression which is a bit weird 
So I decided I was going to have my back operated on. I just wanted to get I just wanted to get away from things. I went to the hospital. And while I'm in the hospital, the first one hundred thousand dollar comes in from the Magnavox license. And it was like somebody sticking the key in my motor and turning the engine on. My depression disappeared overnight. Because he got paid? Because he got $100,000. <laughs> well, I mean, granted, if I suddenly had $100,000, you know, um, I'd probably be a lot less depressed too. <laughs> Marie Antoinette would have loved this man. Are you feeling depressed? You should cover yourself in cash to make yourself feel better. <laughs> it's, it's like that clip from Zombie Zombieland where he's crying and he's just rubbing the money on his tears. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get my bag operated on, but I actually think I'll just cry into my money. <laughs> it's amazing. Dude, but, but money is a huge stress factor. And I guess yeah, if you get that off of your back, um, it can give you a new perspective on things. Because with $100,000 in that time, you could just do anything you want to do. And he could, he could have just made his own company to make whatever he wants to. And maybe that gave him motivation again, that he had enough money to hire people to, to look forward to something and make a new dream. Yeah, money gives you autonomy, right? Like it, uh, it, it lets you do things you couldn't normally do. It's hard to admit it, but it, that's how it works. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So even though Ralph made a bunch of money from the Odyssey, it's not considered a major commercial success. But it is the console that invented the game, which is one of the best known retro games in the world. Table tennis, you know? It's also named, known by the name Table Tennis. At least it should be. <laughs> but for some reason, one year later, Atari, with the help of Nolan Bushnell, who will get his own episode because the man is insane as well, mm -hmm. decided to specifically plagiarize the game and call it Pong, which ended in a very nasty legal battle between Atari and Magnavox. But why do we all think that Pong is the origin, the father of all video games? and not the Odyssey table tennis. It's because of the difference where one could find an Atari machine and where one could find the Odyssey. The Odyssey was in the homes of people, only accessible to those who had the income to pay for it. The Atari was the machine that was stuck into every arcade machine at the time. You didn't have to own an Atari to play Pong. You just needed a few quarters and a friend had to go to the arcade. And this is why Pong is part of the culture, cultural memory. And table tennis is not, even though it was first. That's fascinating. Yeah. And basically, Pong was part of the rise of the video game arcade, right? It's completely um, fused with it. And Pong is one of the many examples of how a remake can often be much more successful than the original. But still, Magnavox came first. And what did they do about that? What do you do about that when you live in America? You sue. And, of course. <laughs> and the lawsuits it of took, course. The lawsuit took six years. And it, That's not surprising. Yeah. It ended in 1977 with a weird precedent that any video game where a machine-controlled visual element hit and bounced off a player-controlled element would violate the, painted, the patent by Bill Rush. Oh, okay. So we're getting into patent law here. Yeah. And yeah, this was Bill Rush. The, um, the game was Bill Rush's idea. He patented, but patent, patented, patented it, patented. We usually say patent. Patented, patent. <laughs> I can say that. You, you did it. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> sorry, Docs and I have this thing now. If I ever try to pronounce a German word, he told me that on the third try, he always tells me I got it right. So I feel good about myself. So I started doing it to him and I love it. Good job, Dax. He did it. Yeah. Okay. So like, do you have a friend named Pat? Okay. Say Pat. Pat. Okay. So Pat-int. Patent. Patent. No, I can't. It's totally fine. I'll just say German. Patent. There you go. That works too. How would you say that? How would you say that word in German? Patent. That's the German. Oh, is that literally it? Yeah. Oh, well, it's if you say it in the German way, it sounds almost identical to the the American way of saying it. 
the 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 real way, right? Of course. <laughs> so, okay, this is the end of the Odyssey, but it's not Ralph's end. Okay. Instead of quitting his job again, like he did so many times, he would remain at Sanders Associates until he he'd retire in 1987. He had three children with his wife Dina. He would go on to work with military applications, like he designed precision rifle training apparatus for the military training purposes by using his gaming experience. But he would also cause further progress within the gaming world and drive the community forward. After he retired, he founded a consulting firm and kept working on projects for the rest of his life. During this time, he was part of the development of toys like, do you know this Simon Says game? Yeah. yeah he made that. Okay. I think they, like in the 90s, they um they shortened it to just Simon, and I remember they tried to make it like really fucking cool, mm -hmm. right? And it was like, oh, you're not just doing Simon says. It's like, are you gonna challenge Simon, right? Like that was the thing. Like, oh, it was this battle between you and Simon. We have these ads too, yeah. But yeah, um, he was part of that. That came out of his box, and again, smashing buttons with colors. You see that? You see? Yes, the it is. <laughs> 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 Um, you know, I just think I got to get back to my roots. You know, I just have to get back to what really made me happy. And that's just hitting buttons that light up. He received the Medal of Honor from Bush Jr. in two oh, interesting. 2006. And he died in 2014 in New Hampshire. And this guy was one hell of a dude. What a fascinating person. Yeah, insane. I greatly enjoyed researching this guy. But what I enjoyed the most was reading about how he constantly trash-talked Magnavox while they tried to sell his, <laughs> his, his child. <laughs> so funny. Oh, man. So what do you think about this? Well, first off, I fell prey to the exact same trap, right? I'm like, fuck yeah, we're going to talk about Pong. I know Pong. But um, how, how fascinating that it was, you know, it's completely stolen and plagiarized, which from what I know about Atari is par for the fucking course. So not surprised in the slightest, but I mean, I can totally see it though, that like, you know, sometimes ports of games onto other systems do better than the original system that they came from. You know, sometimes remakes do better than the original thing just because more people have access to it based on the tech. And so it's really fascinating to me that even in the beginning, that's how this worked. Yeah. You know, it, it, it wasn't like, a oh, and then it got ported to the PS4 and suddenly more people played it. It was like the first console and then it got ported to like the next one. You know, <laughs> like that's crazy. But nobody knows the Odyssey, right? The Atari, yeah. the Atari is generally perceived as the first console. Right. Well, boy, we're going to have to do we're going to have to do an Atari episode sometime and Whew, man, so much cocaine. So much cocaine those people did. <laughs> okay. Let's... You think I'm kidding? <laughs> I don't think you are. <laughs> let's talk about All sources right. for a second. I yeah, used um, our own personal Bible, The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen R. Kent. Recommend to anyone, if you're into video game history, to read that book. It's really informative. Also, he has a... There's a bi biography about him on the internet webpage Immigrant Entrepreneurship. Um, there's also an obituary about him that I used as a source, and he has a personal website, which looks rather cute. It's called ralphbear.com. <laughs> it's so simple. That's great. Yeah, Man, I really enjoyed this. You know, sometimes we really get into the weeds of like, and then they decided to use this microprocessor and the way that it interacted with the hardware cost them X amount of dollars, right? And then like you hit me with this episode where you're like, dude got drafted into World War II and was making radios out of string. And I'm just like, fuck yeah, let's do this shit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think like doing half of the episode about him being in Europe was fine. Yeah, totally great. Okay, so we would like to thank a few people. Yeah. Especially the people that listen to us and give us feedback about our things and also ideas about what episodes to do. But also to people like Quadley, those that made our music or helps you set up your microphone. Yeah, I was just about to thank him. So I'm using a new microphone. It's not perfect yet. We actually spent time trying to troubleshoot it before we started here. But yeah, it was time for me to upgrade. So I am now using a, it's called Shure, a Shure SM58. And um, I'm not a... Um, sound guy but it seems to be pretty killer so but yeah thanks quad much appreciated my man 
Okay, I hope all of you have a good day and a good month of May. And we all see you for the next episode. Yeah, stay safe. Get your vaccines if you aren't already. And um, catch you later. Bye.